Thank you, Pastor, so much. This morning we'll be in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll be focusing in on verse 16. We'll be reading verses 14 through 16. And what we've been doing and will continue to do in these next weeks, we have been focusing on passages in the New Testament which lend themselves to us to consider them as either hymns or portions of hymns that were written, used in worship in the early church. Now, scholars differ over whether these hymns were actually quoted from and inserted in the New Testament or whether this is actually the origin of those hymns. I tend to think it was the origin of them as we find them in Scripture, but needless to say, they are wonderful passages of Scripture to enrich our understanding of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and how we should uh, worship him. So, let's look together. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And as the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of the Lord shall stand forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. We live in an age when truth has fallen on hard times. Indeed, many people have difficulty even defining what truth is. Phil Philip Graham Ryken, in his commentary, recalls some decades ago when another White House scandal had burst upon the scene that at a press conference when attorneys were being questioned by reporters, one reporter in particular asked, what is the truth in this matter? And the attorney replied by saying, the truth is contained in that deposition right there and will remain until in consultation with the prosecution it changes. And that, in many ways, is a summary of how people view truth. But, of course, when we turn to Scripture, we're talking about something that is denied largely in our culture. We're talking about absolute truth. We're talking about truth that is established firmly in the heavens, anchored there, and endures throughout the ages. And we see, as Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, his concern is for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, in particular, he's gone to great lengths to talk about the qualifications of those who would serve as officers, officers of the Lord Jesus Christ in his church. My mentor, Gordon Reed, would always make that distinction in saying that elders and deacons are not merely officers of the church. They are officers of the Lord Jesus Serving in the church. And I would encourage all of us to remember that as believers, we are, above all else, servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We may serve in the church. We serve in our homes. We serve in any number of locations. But as those who follow the Lord Jesus, we are his servants always. But Paul's concern is for the church. That is throughout the Bible. Many people today are 
wrestling with the notion or otherwise accepting the idea that it's perfectly fine to be a Christian and not be associated with the church. Let me just say that that is a foreign concept to the Bible. Yes, you can be a believer in the Lord Jesus and not be affiliated with the local church, but that is not the way it's intended. And you cannot grow in the way that God intends when you are separated from the church. The Lord Jesus said, I will build my church. And we, today, as we meet together, are bearing testimony to that. And so as we see here, we understand and are reminded again that the church is God's household, which upholds the truth that was once concealed but is now revealed. We are the household of God. We are brought together by the Lord Jesus. He's the one who saves us. He's the one who saves us into his church. It is his work from first to last. And, of course, as Paul is writing this, he's writing to Timothy, who is in Ephesus. And in Ephesus stood one of the great seven wonders of the world. The Temple of Diana stood there, this great, huge edifice that caused everyone to wonder and marvel at it when they looked at it. But it was an empty building. The church of the Lord Jesus doesn't necessarily commend itself to people as a structure. After all, it is a edifice that's made up of people, not stones or marble or precious things like that, but rather by precious people who are brought together, made up, make up the church of the Lord Jesus. And we are inhabited by God himself. The temple of Diana was empty. She didn't live there because she's the figment of the imagination of those who worshipped her. But God actually dwells in the midst of his people. We are his habitation. We are his household. And we read of the great mystery of godliness. And so we understand that this mystery of godliness ultimately is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is the faith that we confess. And this faith is fixed on the person and work of Christ. John R. W. Stott has famously said, Christianity is Jesus Christ. Everything that we are, all that we hope to be, is tied in him. We are united in him, as Dr. Lilback will articulate again this evening. We are in union with Christ. He's everything. Without him, there's nothing. Literally nothing. We'll see that when we come to Colossians, so I don't want to give that away yet. We understand that this mystery, being the Lord Jesus, is also, because it's firmly fixed in him, it concerns the truth about him, that the mystery is a collection of true information that God has revealed to his people. The faith, once delivered to all the saints, is a, is a collection of, of true truth, as Francis Schaeffer would say. And so the church is not the foundation of the truth, as many would interpret this, but rather a pillar and buttress of the truth, not the foundation. Remember, the, the church is ultimately built upon the apostles and the prophets, and Jesus Christ is our chief cornerstone. Paul says that in Ephesians. But the church acts as a pillar and buttress, just like those pillars in the temple dedicated to Diana, which were huge. There were over a hundred of them, and they were some six stories high, holding that huge marble roof above so that it could be seen from miles and miles away. So we have had the truth entrusted to us, and we hold it up for the whole world to see. 
That's what it means for us to be the, the pillar and buttress of truth, or at least part of it. But moving on to get to the meat of what we want to talk about, we see that God reveals the Lord Jesus in a way that shows his true nature, both human and divine. This mystery of godliness, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, we see in this marvelous passage, which enriches our understanding of all things that matter, how that Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, we see in that statement this glorious mystery which describes for us this single person who was both human and divine, both man and God. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and he dwelt among us. We confess, of course, by use of the Apostles' Creed, which is often used, and hoping to do a series on that in coming months as a understanding of what we believe, conceived by the Holy Spirit. He came into the world miraculously, brought forth from the womb of the Virgin Mary, so that even in his conception, there was no sin. He did not bear the original sin of our parents like we do by virtue of being conceived and born into the world. He was conceived so that he was in the womb sinlessly, and he continued his life sinlessly, even as a human being. Both God and man, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, as we sing in the Christmas hymn. And we also know that the Holy Spirit anointed him so that he performed miracles and even rose from the grave. So, manifested in the flesh, he was revealed as a human being at a real time and place. And vindicated by the Spirit, even at his baptism. As John, his cousin, baptized him, they saw, as it were, the Holy Spirit as a dove that descended upon him and the voice of the Father boomed from heaven. And throughout the course of his ministry, he was under the guidance and was otherwise under the anointing of the Holy Spirit so that he performed miracles. He was vindicated in that way. He demonstrated his true identity when he healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf causing the lame to walk, and even raising the dead to life. All of those were signs and indicators of his true identity. He was able to do things that no sinner on earth could ever achieve, as the Spirit vindicated him. But ultimately, and again, I don't want to give things away, but we are in this season of uh, the year when we are thinking about Resurrection Sunday or Easter the ultimate vindication occurred when Jesus rose from the grave, having been placed there dead, having been crucified on the cross. The Holy Spirit, as the Father raised him, it was by means of the Spirit that Jesus was raised, vindicated for all the world to see, to demonstrate that he truly is the Savior of sinners. We're always looking for proof, you know, that Somebody really is who they claim to be or that they really are going to prove to be the genuine article. There's always hope for that. And time and again, we're disappointed. But when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we understand that he truly died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins and for yours, as you repent and believe in him, you can have confidence in knowing that the Spirit himself has vindicated the Son and we ultimately will see him vindicated when he comes on that day when all of earth 
Every tribe and tongue and nation will bow before him and worship him. For those who have trusted in him in this life, that will be a joyous occurrence. For others, it will be a grievous one, but they nevertheless will be forced to bow the knee and worship him. He will be vindicated. And then we read further in this hymn, which is really a kind of a double chiasm. And you always had trouble when we got into those literary structures. I'm, I'm sorry, Dr. Peters. I just... You know, it was sort of like math for me. I kind of understood. I knew there was something I ought to be getting there, but it was just took time to get through this thick skull. We have a wonderful literary structure that I don't have time to unpack, but it it really is worded in a way that not only expresses itself beautifully, but its its structure is beautiful. Seen by angels. Angels saw it all, and people are still proclaiming him to the nations as we read. Now, it's interesting here, the word angels, angelos, means messenger. And there is some thought given here that possibly Paul is telling Timothy that messengers witnessed this, that perhaps this is a way of talking about the apostolic office, that those who are proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus as messengers of that gospel are the ones who actually saw Jesus on earth and witnessed his miracles and his resurrection and his ascension. And that's certainly true. There's no denying that, and I wouldn't argue against that interpretation. That may be indeed what Paul was saying to Timothy. But it is certainly true that literally angels, those heavenly beings, also witnessed these events. After all, they're the ones who proclaimed his coming to both Mary and Joseph. They proclaimed his birth to the shepherds. Angels ministered to the Lord Jesus at different times during his life on earth, and they were the first ones to proclaim the resurrection to those who came to the tomb. The angels saw it all, and they proclaimed it all. They proclaimed that he would return even at his ascension. Why are you standing there gazing into heaven? He's going to return in the same way that he went up from you. They witnessed it, and they desire to look into these things and understand them, Peter tells us. So from his birth, through his death, to his ascension, angels were very much interested and involved. But so also were those who were human eyewitnesses who saw it and proclaimed it. And of course, proclaimed among the nations. Even as Paul is writing these words, the gospel had spread throughout the known world at an astounding rate of speed. And it continues to spread today. And so Jesus had told his disciples to, to make disciples of all the nations, to baptize them and to teach them. And that's what's happening today. Disciples continue to make disciples. As followers of the Lord Jesus, we proclaim the word, we teach and instruct so that others may follow him. It's happening everywhere. We uh, all have been, many of us at least, participating in uh, Operation Christmas Child, and we continue to hear those stories and see them. You can watch on YouTube children in different parts of the world getting these shoe boxes with gifts in there, and yet also there is this intentional sharing of the gospel with all of that. And so kids everywhere are coming to know the Lord Jesus as a result of that. People, adults from every walk of life coming to know the Lord Christ. I heard just this past week of a man in the Muslim world, in a, in a nation that would surprise you, 
who woke up one morning from a dream and told his wife. He said, I am not sure what just happened, but in the night, God spoke to me and told me that Jesus is his beloved son and that I should listen to him. And so this man sought out a Christian missionary in his neighborhood and asked if he could help him. Wow. Talk about low-hanging fruit. I mean, right there. Somebody's coming and asking, can you tell me what it means that this is my beloved son? People from every walk of life on this very day are hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus and they're coming to know him and the gospel continues to spread. I know what the news says. I know that people have been captivated this past week by a slap at the Oscars. But I also want to tell you that that's not the news that matters. The Lord Jesus in Matthew 24 that I'll talk about in King Street this coming week, Lord willing, mentions amazing things that will happen. There are going to be earthquakes and famines and wars and people will be distracted by all of those things. But what he says ultimately is this. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony and then the end will come. If you want to be aware of what really matters in the world, keep up with the spread of the gospel as it is being proclaimed throughout the world. The Bible is being translated into languages that have never had it before. That's something exciting. Look up Wycliffe Bible Translators on YouTube and watch one of those, one of those celebrations where a tribe in Africa or in Papua New Guinea is receiving the New Testament for the first time in their own language. You want to talk about something, if, I'm telling you, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood is wet. <laughs> the gospel is spreading throughout the whole wide earth as a testimony to what God the Father is doing through His Son. And that's right here, proclaimed among the nations. It's not just about us, it's about a vast number which no one can number. And only in heaven will we see the full extent of the gospel as it is spread literally like wildfire through the world. And ultimately, we see, of course, that not only is he proclaimed among the nations, he's believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Jesus has been received by people on earth as he has been received by heaven. Yes, we read in John 1, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Don't be discouraged at the world which rejects the Lord Jesus. People have always rejected him. They do now and they will continue to, sadly for their sakes. But rejoice in knowing that some get it, that the light dawns and they're ushered from darkness into the kingdom of his light. People are getting it, men and women and boys and girls from every walk of life. Trusting in Jesus, believing on his name, receiving him, and rejoicing. It's happened. I know a lady who years ago was attending a college course, and the professor was very skeptical and made fun of biblical Christianity and encouraged all of his students to go see the concert, Jesus Christ Superstar. And so she went to the concert, and of course you remember how that was greatly used to dissuade many from the faith, but she was at that concert, and in spite of the message in it, she realized, having believed all of her life that Jesus was God, she realized in that concert that Jesus really had become a man. And she trusted in Jesus. 
Now, I'm not telling you to go play that music to people to evangelize them. I'm just telling you that in spite of the intents of composers and authors and skeptics alike, that people are coming to know the Lord Jesus. Because the gospel continues to be the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. And then, of course, when Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, remember, that's not clouds like are out here right now. It's not that Jesus was lifted up and just some clouds happened by. That was a symbol of his deity. Like the pillar of cloud that guided the Israelites by day, it was that cloud. It was a symbol of Christ's deity that caused them not to be able to see him. And as they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, those two men stood by, as I've already uh, referenced. They were in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus was received. By the Father and by the heavenly host. Taken up in glory. We speak of the life and ministry of Jesus in two parts. His humiliation. His humiliation which ultimately takes us from his conception all the way to the grave. That greatest of all humiliation. But then there is the exaltation of Jesus. Beginning with his resurrection, continuing through his ascension, his enthronement in heaven at the Father's right hand, and ultimately his return when he is vindicated before all, Christ is exalted and glorified. And so our worship aims at exalting Jesus. He is worthy. And as we come to the table of the Lord Jesus right now, remember that our aim is to exalt him as we proclaim his death until he comes. It has everything to do with Jesus. And so we sing to him, we worship him, we adore him. And by God's grace, we receive him. Our resurrected and living Lord Jesus, present with us, having died for us. It is the wonder of all wonders. The mystery of the ages. Not a mystery because it remains concealed. Great mystery in that God has revealed it. That even thick-headed sinners like us, transformed by His grace, may rejoice in the glory of our Redeemer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You are great and greatly to be praised, and we thank You for Your blessings. And we thank You for the privilege of celebrating this wondrous meal that Jesus has given to us. Oh, Father, grant that it may be more than a mere memorial, but may we experience the very risen Christ as we by faith partake of these elements, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm not sure that we made a big enough deal about this, but by unanimous and enthusiastic assent, Pastor Patrick.